Welcome to Slayer Fest 98. I'm your host, Ian Carlos Crawford. And I'm your other host, Matthew Rodriguez. And today we are joined by a special guest. Introduce yourself. I'm Caleb Rarig. Yay! Yay! Caleb wrote wrote one of my favorite YA books that I read last year. Um, You should read it. It's called Last Scene Leaving. Um... And today we're going to discuss the Season 3 Buffy episode, Band Candy. Um, But before we get into that, we want you to tell us your Buffy origin story, Caleb. Okay, so I first, I was first introduced to the world of Buffy by my BFF in high school, who was into the movie. Um, Because back then we were very into these sort of like good, bad, kind of comedy horror uh, films. Yeah, and... And, you know, and it's a, it's a very uneven film, but it was actually, it's it's like, you can tell that the writing is clever, even if the the actual film itself is is mishandled. Um, and then, you know, flash forward to, like, the mid-90s, mid to late 90s, when Scream came out and totally revitalized the horror genre. And then there was this TV show called Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And I think at first I was I was sort of like, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand how this is a television show. Um, but it got so much critical acclaim, and I was so into horror at the time, and I decided, all right, all right, I'll give it a try. So my first episode of Buffy the TV show is actually, appropriately enough, Halloween, which is the immediate predecessor to Band Candy. Yeah. Oh, totally. <laughs> one, one generation removed, the season two counterpart. Nice, nice. Yeah. You're one of the few people that, like, like both, that, like, the movie and... Because I did not like the movie, and my mom's actually the one that had to get me into Buffy, because I was like, oh, that movie was stupid. Oh, that show looks lame. And now here I am, 100 years later, with a Buffy podcast. I mean, I would say it's like... I, I enjoyed... The, uh, here's the thing. I enjoyed the movie because it had this pop culture sensitivity to it. Yeah. Even if... Yeah, even if it was sort of like it couldn't seem to make up its mind what it wanted to be. And it, and it kind of failed on the two fronts that it was trying to tackle. Um, because it made too much out of the, like the quirky stuff, um, which brought it away from like, it made it not scary and not really deep because they were too busy trying to be funny. And some of the funny stuff fell a little flat, but the dialogue was great. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And some of those outfits Chrissy Swanson wears are, like, pretty great. <laughs> oh my gosh, like, I mean, okay, yeah, the 90s are back, to, to uh, my shock and horror, um, but, but you, yeah, you could totally see that stuff, like, the, the retro yellow leather jacket, I mean, come on. Yeah. yeah, that yellow leather jacket is actually really tight, and I think, I so I'm also a fan of the film, and um, I love Christy Swanson in it. I think actually looking back on it, when people talk about it, people talk too much about like Whedon's sensibility and how it transformed the show, but I don't think we talk enough that like, I actually think Christy Swanson gave a really good performance in that movie. She and, did. And I mean, like, I'm happy that SMG is is by all means and by, you know, by all other <laughs> standards and everything, she is Buffy, but um, Christy Swanson was a good you know, beginner was a good sketch for what Buffy would become. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So today we are here to talk about an episode that you just brought up 
in your talking, which is uh, Band Candy, which yes. is such a good episode. <laughs> it is such a good episode. I actually, I, I've always had, this. it's always been in the, so season three is my absolute favorite season, and it's filled with highlights. You're and on the right Band podcast is, then. <laughs> yes, exactly. And Band Candy is always, it's it's a very like viewer friendly, it's, it's a good one to show people if they haven't seen seen the show before because it's so accessible and it's kind of you know it's fun and it's cute and it's got some like i don't know some very like classic buffy moments yeah well i think i think because we're still giving big picture stuff i think what i love about band candy is that it is one of the episodes that does mix tones and genres so well because um it definitely is one of buffy's more humorous episodes and by that I mean I mean it doesn't have the jokey tone of like all of season six where you feel like they're trying to make a joke out of everything and you kind of wish they would stop like it just feels like a straight up humorous episode and I think a lot of the jokes land and also though but in order for that humor to work Joss does something or we always say Joss and I say this every time but I'm sure someone else wrote it but it was probably more than (laughs) but actually I think I think this one was written by Jane Espenson. I think. I think. Okay. I'm doing the Watcher thing and looking it up. Don't worry. So, though, the writers did something which is really important, which I think is that they took the episode with a really humorous episode and ended up giving it really large stakes. Because at the end, when you learn that there's going to be, like, babies killed, like, that kind of... It doesn't let the air out of the episode. It's not like, you know, someone pops your balloon and you're like, oh, now all of a sudden everything's really serious. But it's such a contrast in tone that it elevates both parts of it. Like, it elevates the drama by bringing you from, like, oh, everyone is a kid. is Everyone's a teen again. Isn't this goofy? To, like, oh, shit, like, remember yeah. the mayor is evil and now he wants to kill some kitties. Like, that is <laughs> well, that. That's so, the thing. Is that I... Yeah. I so okay so if I have one quibble about this episode it's like okay so what are we looking at here the, the mayor hires Mr. Trick to hire Ethan Rain to curse some candy to give to Snyder to give to the kids to sell it to the parents turn them all into teenagers and all so they can s- steal a handful of babies like it I feel well, like there's a much more efficient <laughs> and cost-effective way of stealing four measly babies from the hospital wait, and, wait. I want to re I want to re-say what you said because I feel like it's not that complicated <laughs> okay wait Mr. Trick because we've talked about Mr. Trick on the podcast Mr. Trick even though he's very smart he's basically like a high-level goon and he was Kakistos' right-hand man, and then Kakistos dies, and he's like, who's the most powerful person in the town? So he goes to the mayor, and so he becomes the mayor's lackey, and so the mayor needs to sacrifice, the mayor needs to make a sacrifice to a sewer snake demon, and so he kind of hires, so I didn't. I wouldn't say he hires Mr. Trick, Mr. Trick's already his, his right-hand man, but Mr. Trick, and that's where it gets complicated, like why in God's green earth does he hire Ethan Rain out of nowhere? That's the part that's like, <laughs> right. So he hires Ethan Rain, and Ethan Rain's plan is to sell everyone candy that they have to then sell to turn all the adults into children so that no one is watching when he snatches babies to feed to Draconis. <laughs> which is also a- partly the plot of, like, Batman Returns. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's just such a Rube Goldbergian plot. I'm kind of like, I, I really, honestly, they didn't even steal that many babies. It was only like four babies. Right. They went to one hospital and got like, you know, however many. Yeah. And also like, like three, four vampires walked in and then strolled out with some babies. And also it feels like just because the adults, like if, (laughs) if we're talking about this, buy four babies online, if you want them that bad, like, it feels like this is such (laughs) a roundabout way. And like, that doesn't necessarily mean the adults wouldn't be upset at a baby being like, if those nurses were paying attention, even if they were teens, they'd still be like, Oh no, don't steal the babies. Right. Hmm? So, so there's, so there's two things here. So I, I guess, we're just going to look at the plot holes in this episode first. That's just for our listeners, our lovely listeners. Right now, you're just getting all the plot holes. So this reminds me kind of like every summer when a superhero movie comes out, and they're kind of like, wait a minute, what was Ultron's plan? Really? That sounds really conflict. Because um, you right, think about it, it's like, it's like in James Bond, how, how ultimately the bad guy always wants something that is frankly kind of simple. But... They yeah. always have this incredibly elaborate plot in order to get it. Right, like, okay, so so I just want to go... So, okay, the, the, the whole plan hinges on the fact that they think that somehow by selling high school candy that every adult in Sunnydale will eat a bar. <laughs> exactly. Like, every single adult in this town is going to eat a bar of candy and then will not care about children. If you are, like, an evil crime lord who is also the mayor of a town... Why can't you just like round up some vamps and just have them go into a yeah. hospital at night and just slaughter the nurses and take the babies? Exactly. Yeah. Or poison the poison the city's water supply with <laughs> cursed water molecules or something. I'm like I, I I I just however, I I am quibbling because I do actually really like this episode. Me too, yes. I just yeah, I just I feel like the babies and the snake monster in the toilet were kind of a <laughs> It was a means to an end. It was it was added in order to justify the kind of like Freaky Friday premise, which, see, I feel like if there's a running theme in season three, it is adults can't be trusted. Yeah. And this is it, like they establish it right out of the gate in Anne where the bad guy is like sweet, benevolent, churchy Ken who actually turns out to be this vile creep who is preying on vulnerable teenagers. And it carries all the way through to the fact that the big bad is the ultimate adult authority in Sunnydale, the mayor. And there are a few episodes that kind of reinforce this theme throughout. And Band Candy is actually one of them, in my opinion, because it is this whole episode wherein all the adults in Sunnydale become immediately unreliable and Buffy is forced to kind of assume a leadership role. Well, what... And- Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, what's so interesting about what you just said is that I, I I wouldn't have actually phrased the theme that way, and I love that you did because it's making me think so many brilliant things. Oh, it's made me think so things because of what you said is brilliant. And I think that <laughs> what, I'm, what I'm thinking is, like, Buffy's senior year in high school in so many ways this year of the show is about the transition from, you know, like, teendom or, you know, high schoolness to adulthood. And... Yeah. So when you're saying, like, you know, adults can't be trusted, it's really, like, Buffy comes up against so many authority figures, and they really all fail her in a way this season. Yes. Like, the Watchers well, okay. Council ends up failing her, and, like, she's think not, about, there, you know... Think about Band Candy and Revelations as kind of, like, a, a, a twinned pair of episodes that have an echo later on in the same season with Gingerbread and Helpless. 
because fan candy is sort of like the fun frothy episode about adults all kind of succumbing to a mass delusion and abdicating their moral authority and then in gingerbread that comes back in a much darker way where i call gingerbread the fox news episode because (laughs) it's about a hideous monster that brainwashes seemingly reasonable adults by preying on their fears and emotions causing them to seek out imaginary enemies in their midst and destroy them (laughs) so and the, so, it, what's interesting is they also mirror each other. So, Band yeah. Candy is an episode that is humorous throughout and then ends very seriously. And yeah. Gingerbread is an episode that is extremely dire throughout. Like, we see things getting worse and worse and worse. And it kind yes. of ends on a joke. Like, it ends right. with, like, the monster revealing itself and Buffy staking it through the neck. And so, it's this really, like, kind of dry, yeah. haughty humor at the end so they actually mirror each other in really interesting ways too exactly and so you know in 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 band candy where she you know joyce and giles sort of become these i I mean i I love what they do like i love the way that how they they end up being these kind of like joyce is this sort of like sweet but kind of whiny teenager and and giles of course is back to to being ripper but but a much less intimidating ripper than than i think you might have expected if you'd watched you know dark dark age from from season two yeah um but but then you you cut forward in time to gingerbread and suddenly joyce is joyce is the bad guy joyce is the is the villain that buffy has to survive in order to you know vanquish the demon um and and then in revelations uh you're introduced to gwendolyn price who is and then from Gwendolyn Post. <laughs> Gwendolyn Post. Sorry. Pushes up and glasses. From... <laughs> no, uh, please correct me. Um, but she's she's from the Watchers Council, which up to that point the viewer has never had any any reason to question at all. Um, they are, you know, Giles is a Watcher, and the Watchers Council is this, you know, force guided by mystical destiny. And it's your first introduction to the fact that Watchers are just as corruptible as anybody else. And then you cut forward to Helpless, where Giles becomes the bad guy that Buffy has to survive. And it's a complete, like, these two episodes, Gingerbread and Helpless, are where are where Buffy sort of, her mother and father figure, respectively, she kind of has this big break with her faith in them, which is a huge part of growing up. And the groundwork is laid here in Band Candy. Yeah. Well, you're, we're talking so much about authority figures. One of the things that... Um, Ian and I were talking about before the episode started was how this episode starts out, you know, about SATs and slaying and all these things and the ways in which Giles and Joyce are pulling Buffy in two ways. And um, so much of the beginning part of the season has to do with Buffy's annoyance with her mother, that her mother is constantly questioning her because of what happened over the summer and her and i have the same annoyance with her mother for doing that by the way (laughs) well i would say it's more than annoyance but i think that it's like you know there's a there's a level of suspicion from joyce toward buffy yeah the beginning of the entire season that buffy feels is not deserved um so we know that she's kind of playing them against each other and there's that scene where they confront her about it which is so great i love Um, that scene i well i i think that from an almost, I don't know who, if it's like a director or a directorial thing. One of the things I love in this episode is that all the adults are constantly eating the candy in the episode. And like that whole yes. scene 
where um, Anthony Stewart Head and I don't know why I didn't say Giles, but where uh, <laughs> uh, Joyce are confronting Buffy, they are eating the candy. But um, I think it's very intimidating because I think it's the first time that we see Giles and Joyce teaming up. Yes. And because before Joyce, Joyce switches allegiances a lot. I don't know. So she was yeah. mad at Giles. But they are kind of teaming up, and it does seem like a two-on-one kind of thing. So do you guys think that the lie Buffy tells them about being at the bronze, it feels so weird that it's so obvious that she's lying. I couldn't tell if it's supposed to be like, oh, they're eating the candy, so they're already affected, because they're not actually acting like crazy teens yet, but they are eating the candy. So I'm not sure if it's like, oh, they're just stepping over each other to be such good parents, or if it's just that, like, the candy has affected them already at this point, that they're like, oh, yeah, she was at the bronze. Of course she was. Why wouldn't she be at the bronze? I, uh, yeah, that's a good question. I guess I, I guess I feel like I, I, I was, I was sort of banking on that's the candy starting to kick in because they are acting a little weird and you know beyond just passing the candy back and forth which by the way the the music cues in this episode are masterfully (laughs) oh my gosh yes i think season three in general has some of the best music cues (laughs) season three has such good music it's a fucking character in the entire season and actually we should do like an episode about oh my god we should season three (laughs) (laughs) so good but yeah, and and so I kind of feel like Joyce sort of she supplies Buffy with the like an, an easy out for you know where were you at the bronze and so she jumps on it. But it does seem like she kind of she doesn't really commit to it. She just sort of is like, oh, I was doing bronze things, and uh, yeah, it did seem like a little weak. But it it also did seem like they're they're they were not as pissed off with Buffy as my parents would have been if if they had found out that I'd been lying to the both of them. <laughs> so I do think there was a little bit of like magical candy action working. So let's go a little deeper now as oh I'm actually not gonna finish that sentence. Um let's go a little <laughs> bit deeper into <laughs> Joyce and Giles and how they function this episode because not only do they team up, we then actually kind of get a lot of the action happening simultaneously of the episode um, is a, a journey of Joyce and Giles, if you will. Yeah, that's fair. And and just as much as we see Ripper coming out, we also get a sense of like Buffy's mom as a teenager. And I'm wondering what you think of her. Like, I think actually the character, just to p- put be honest about how I feel, I actually feel like Joyce's characterization as a teenager is not consistent. There's times where she seems like she's like the mean girl, uh, popular the mean popular girl, and then there's times where she seems like a wannabe. Like I, you know, you know who she made me think of is Harmony, because I, she's. I was just about to say she would have been friends with Cordelia, but not Cordelia. <laughs> but not Cordelia, no, because she would have been she would have been the girl who who would want to hang out with Cordelia and sort of bask in Cordy's golden glow, but would not have had the the kind of well, to to use the word charisma, um, to <laughs> <laughs> to pull off being a cordy herself, because you definitely like she's definitely trying to ingratiate herself with Ripper. She keeps trying, and she's like, she voices an opinion, and he tells her she's wrong, and she immediately acknowledges that he is correct, which is what you do when you're coming from a weaker power position and you want to ingratiate yourself. So. She's the she's the sheep that Cordy ranted about in Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered, 
about, you know, how you're trying to, you know, you want to do everything that everybody else is doing just so you can say you did it first. Well, and you know, what's really interesting about that is that like there, you know, there's a, there's one thing that Joyce does in this episode that kind of, to me shows that she wasn't the cool, cool girl. And it's when she's talking to Ripper and she's obviously like into him and, but is there is definitely a power dynamic that they're not on the same cool level. Yeah. And yeah. her suggestion is that she knows how to get free pay-per-view. And, <laughs> and honestly, God, I, I forgot that, about that. <laughs> that is such, to me an amazing kind of line because it's like, I'm bad. I know how to get free pay-per-view, but it's a kind of bad that includes like staying in the house. <laughs> and that's a kind of thing that like Cordelia would never be like, oh, I know how to get free pay-per-view. Like, she'd be like, no, like, let's go out, have sex in the car. Like, let's be cool. And like, you know, w- you know, whatever. But like, so I-, I always thought that that's really telling of the kind of bad that Joyce is. It's like, oh, yeah. I can, like, we can get like snowy porn on TV <laughs> and, like, and like make out. And Ripper's like, oh no, I'm in actually a sex cult and we're going to go raise some demons. Like, <laughs> I, I feel no, like, honestly, like watching Joyce, like a stupid note that I wrote was like, I feel like Joyce with Giles is me with like any guy I've had a crush on the last few months just being like, ooh, he's so cool. And like, trying to keep up. Like, I feel like that's me when I have a crush. Like, I'm just like, ooh, what can I do to impress? And then, uh, so I'm Joyce, and, but I mean, like, she got banged on a hood of a police car, so it's not too terrible, right? I mean, oh my yeah, gosh. Twice. Twice. <laughs> twice. Yes, twice. Later in your time. <laughs> they, they, uh, yeah, they sealed the deal. I, and, and, you know, good for them. Yeah, right? I, um, yeah, they've both been single for too long, yeah. so... I feel like Joyce and Giles deserve that really good fuck on the hood of a police car. They they did, even <laughs> if they even if they sort of can't look each other in the eye afterwards. But <laughs> it's really That's... important that I ask you that. Um, do you agree? <laughs> do you think that Giles is a daddy? Like, is Giles dad? <laughs> I I mean I I think as Ripper he is, but. Okay. Otherwise, he's kind of more like grandpa. You know what I mean? Like he's just a little. He's like he's such a a Werther's original um, <laughs> cup of Earl Grey kind of a dude. So that's interesting um, because we, we just we've had a lot of talks about Giles on this show, and there's a definite. So would you sleep with Giles, not Ripper? Would you sleep with Giles, the librarian? Oh man, um, I, I feel like. I feel like that's an inappropriate question. <laughs> oh, sorry. I'm, I apologize. This is the scene we really go there on this podcast. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I have never, ever considered that. Um, never? I, no, never. I, I think, because he's such a, he's so avuncular. Like, he's so, like, Buffy's, he's Buffy's stand-in father figure. Uh, I don't know if I could do that. That would be, like, I would feel incestuous. <laughs> but he's Buffy's father, not our father. I mean, fair enough. Like he's, unless you I mean, unless you think you're Don. <laughs> I think I think here's the thing. Like, let's be real. As well, we know Giles is into like opera music and rose petals, and if that's your thing, um, then great. But I have a feeling that you it would be like a it would be a very um, by the numbers kind of copulating and he would be constantly making sure that the temperature in the room was to your liking and 
Uh, I don't know. I that might stress me out. See, I think. Well, first, no, he's not into opera and rose petals though. Opera and rose petals um, is what Angel laid down when he killed Jenny. And remember how pleased Giles looked when he found the rose and he followed That's them. That's true. The but, yeah. but I think I think that Giles is someone who is like a librarian in the streets yeah. and like <laughs> will tear you apart in the streets and Ripper in the sheets. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Yeah, like Giles in the Streets Ripper in the Sheets, which is now a t-shirt that Slayer Fest 98 will be selling. Yeah. <laughs> Momentarily. Um, yeah, so let's, let's just for sake of time, because we're already talked a lot, but we have a uh, really quick, what do you think about the fact that it's important that this is the first time that Joyce sees a sleigh kind of happen? Oh, yeah, you know, it's so funny. This show buries some of these really big moments in these, in episodes, like, like, like in, uh, was it uh, was it Dark? Which one? Which one was it? Where where uh, Cordelia witnesses her first slaying? Oh uh, right, in two. yeah. And it's and it's one of those kind of uh, you don't even realize that it's such a big moment because it it happens in the middle of a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, I think it's significant, in, in part because uh, since Joyce and Giles, um, you know, bang on the hood of a police car and then. <laughs> as a result, pretend not to remember anything that happened. Um, it's a it's a significant moment that then Joyce is sort of forced to pretend that she's sublimated. Uh, and, and so it never really, like, it doesn't become a thing between Joyce and Buffy, which you'd think it kind of would. Well, I mean, technically, like, so it's her first time seeing it since being aware of what a Slayer is. Just that one vampire in Becoming is, like, killed in front ah, of her. But, like, fair enough. it's like... I don't know. I feel like I don't know. Joy spends so much time tripping over herself in these, especially the first half of this season. Like Joyce is really working my nerve in this episode <laughs> until she's like full on teenager. Then I'm buying it because I'm like, oh, I feel like I relate to this. <laughs> you mean you feel like you relate to being a flirty girl who gets banged on the hood of a police car by a cooler guy? God, I wish, but I'm the flirty girl that wants to have that happen. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> and like, uh, you know, when she has, I don't know, like, I just think Joyce, I'm not sure, I'm not even quite sure what, where she's going with this. Because I can't tell if she's, because she still seems, like, mad. Like, when they have the discussion, she's, I, like, didn't remember this until I rewatched this time. Like, I think this is something I didn't pay attention to. She doesn't let Buffy learn how to drive. Like, she specifically right? says that, and that's insane, like, well, she says she doesn't want her going off again. Yeah, and she like you know she could get a bus ticket, so she doesn't want to like give her the knowledge to know how to drive herself and go away. But like that's kind of crazy to say she can't drive, right? Like, right. well, yeah, it's kind of like, girl, don't you want to like send Buffy to the market to get milk? If yeah, you're tired? like, <laughs> like why don't you let your daughter drive? Like, I my mean, mom was yeah. like, hey, there's another driver now. You can go on errands. <laughs> Finally, I can stop taking you places. Um, I, although I, I did want to say though that 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 moment where Buffy gets to she, Joyce gives her the keys and she gets to drive it's it's another one of my favorite moments in this episode because it's such a cute it's such a cute like one of the rare situations where Buffy has no idea what the hell she's doing and she gets to actually be a kid like she gets to be this kind of teenager who's a little in over her head, yes. which so often she is, you know, and, and throughout this episode, she's got to be the one in charge. 
Well, so she gets was... to be she gets to be the like the least competent person in the room at that moment, which <laughs> Buffy is usually not. Right. Yeah, and well, Willow's reactions deserve all every Emmy. <laughs> like that scene yes. of Willow <laughs> reacting to Buffy driving is perfection. <laughs> yes. And it's also <laughs> almost un it's almost like so like you said, like Buffy is also not the like smartest person in the room. And then Buffy being so okay like when she's so happy with herself being in that car like she's pleased as shit and she's just like i mean i told my mom and then she gave me the cheese as if like there wasn't something obviously wrong or like that isn't insane (laughs) right well and this is coming on the heels of there's that scene where she's blindfolded and she manages to like bounce the ball off the wall and hit giles on the other side of the room so she's got great hand-eye coordination and yet she can't figure out how to turn off the parking brake you know (laughs) like i just i just love it and and how yeah and exactly as you said how pleased she is with herself that she gets to drive and she's like screeching around those corners (laughs) and like jumping the curb and just it's great (laughs) Um, it's a a good sequence i think and i also like everything about the teacher's I think is like when the the older the older woman the teacher whose name I can't remember when she's just like well Commandant Snyder is making us do this and then we can get out of here and like Xander's like does anyone else want to marry her and Cordelia's like get in line get <laughs> like on. I love all of it <laughs> yes no that's I I Snyder's my other kind of like standout player from this episode because he really oh, like yeah he just lives that role and does it so well and it's such a great glimpse into into snyder's history and who he was this, the, you know you could have predicted it but he you know this sort of like nerdy kind of you know hanger on bullied teenager who now he has power and he's going to use it what yeah. i always think about in this episode is how good the casting is on buffy because they had to have known like they couldn't have hired someone who was, like, a character actor who could only do, like, mean principal. Yeah. They knew, yeah. they knew they had to hire someone who would eventually have to be used in this way. Like, mm-hmm. who would have to play just, like, this... He's almost, like, I would call him, like, a Eugene from Greece type person. Like, just, <laughs> like, this, like, hopeless nerd who no one wants to talk to and thinks that because he's hanging out with Buffy and Oz who he tortures during the day, like, he thinks he's cool, and, like, it's just, his performance also deserves an Emmy, outstanding guest (laughs) actor in a drama series, but, like, it's so good, um, he's, he's really amazing, and I think that, um, you, I mean, you talk about trusting authority, like, what does it mean, I think it's really meaningful for Buffy to see Principal Snyder work in that way because it was only a few episodes ago that he was trying to keep her out of school and see that he's secretly pining to get in the car with her and be a part of the gang is a really important, like, is a really important character development piece, but it's also, like, Buffy is seeing that everything that she kind of felt about Snyder in their relationship is true. Like, he is rejecting her because in high school she would have rejected him. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's, it's funny for me because I was such a big Star Trek nerd growing up, and Principal <laughs> Snyder was Quark the Ferengi bartender at Deep Space Nine, and, like, I just always think of him because, like, I came, especially because I came to Buffy a little bit later, so, like, I only knew that actor as Quark, and he 
So he has, like, he's a Ferengi, so he's got the big ears and the, like, demon-looking teeth, but he still, like, looks like Principal Snyder. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> like, they oddly still resemble each other. Um, so, like, he's, like, a really good actor because he was a freaking alien bartender who was, like, annoyed and sassy, and then he's, like, this miserable, evil principal in Buffy. So, like, you're right, they did get really good actors on this show. <laughs> They did well, you know. Uh, they they were so some, something that that I actually learned a lot as a writer from from watching this show, um, because you know it, it's if you think about other shows that were sort of contemporary with Buffy, um, at Dawson's Creek, for example, which is a show that I really wanted to like and I couldn't, um, and and some of that was because it felt like every episode you would go through all this drama and upheaval and then the next episode would be right back at square one. All the relationships would be exactly the same. It was like each episode had been written by like as a spec script and they just sort of like smashed them all together. And with Buffy, there was, there was clearly so much forward thought, like so much groundwork gets laid and so much progress is made from one episode to the next. And from one season to the next, there were all of these storylines that they were thinking about years ahead of time so impressive and i feel like cast you know like obviously they have principal poor principal flutie um <laughs> from season one who was just sort of, just sort of existed to become a tragic figure uh and then replaced by snyder who was sort of an enduring kind of secondary villain throughout until season three when he really kind of comes into his own and you find out just exactly how deep his connections to the dark side go so i feel like they definitely had to cast an actor that they were going to be able to work with you know in in a broad range of possible episodes yeah i mean and then he you know he's in it for the whole season and then he comes back for restless which i love Uh, (gasps) yes you know um, and he's good in that. Um, so, um, I don't know. What, so, a thing that, the, one of the other few things that bothered me, um, is that Faith isn't in this episode. Um. Right? And it feels weird because we were just introduced to her, like, three episodes ago, and then they don't do anything with her. Like, she's in, um, Beauty and the Beast and Homecoming, but they don't really do much with her. And then she's just not in this episode at all, which feels weird like i couldn't tell if it was on purpose or maybe they didn't know what to do with her yet because i always did read that joss ended up keeping her around longer than he originally intended to oh really Uh, i didn't know that can i give my boring answer that i usually give for questions like this yeah (laughs) i think that they didn't keep faith because She's not a main player, and they didn't have to pay her if she wasn't in this episode. <laughs> you know what? That is actually not a bad read on that. But yeah. I, and I also I feel like I also feel like so much of this episode, so much of the point. I I think the point of this episode is sort of doing this kind of like um, uh, subverting the parent-child relationship between Buffy and Joyce and Buffy and Giles, and the focus is so much on. Um, their relationship and then there are kind of like these these running subplots you know uh, willow and xander and then their relationship so i think that so much of the focus had to be very specifically on buffy joyce and giles and then with the reintroduction of ethan rain it's 
it's more history for this very specific group of characters that excludes faith. So I feel like where would they have put faith in this episode? They would have had to create some sort of side channel to, to put her in there and to give her something to react against um, in this episode. And maybe it just wasn't something they figured they could do cleanly. I also think that in this world, as we've talked about many times, Buffy is a world... I mean, this is 98, so they wouldn't have had cell phones at that point. If it were now, they, like Buffy could have been like, yo, demon in the sewer, meet me at here. And then like pin drop. I should say drop a pin in the sewer. Like, yo, meet me here. But like there wasn't that. So like never is there really, I think, the urge to like pick up the phone and call capitals the other slayer, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very good point. It's so funny. It's so funny to think how how technology has changed episodes like this or like the TV shows and how how very different slang would be in the age of digital technology yeah. or ubiquitous digital technology, I should say. <laughs> Camera phones and all that jazz. Yeah, because if Buffy saw a demon, she would have been able to be like, I just lifted up my phone and did a thing as if any of you can see me. She would be able to just be like, oh, I got a picture of the demon. I don't know what it is, but here's a picture. Yeah, <laughs> but no, and she'd do a reverse image search and she'd find <laughs> it on, you know, demonology.web or whatever. And then she'd find uh, out the demon was Parks Denton the whole time. <laughs> exactly. Oh my God. Right? Uh, <laughs> um, so I think one of the interesting things about this episode too is that like, <laughs> first of all, I don't think the CGI in Draconis is that bad. Is that his name? What's his name? Lurconis. Lurconis. Draconis is the name of um, a character in the Dungeons and Dragons episode of Community. That's why I keep saying Draconis. <laughs> um, Lurconis is not that bad of a CGI for 1998 WB CGI, let's be honest. That's fair. All right. True. No, um, but I think the villain kind of keeps shifting in this episode, which is interesting because. You actually don't get a huge fight with Ethan Rain the way that no. you keep thinking there's going to be eventually a huge fight with Ethan Rain. Right, you know, that's like, true. We never actually get the hand-to-hand combat where Buffy gets to, like, kick his ass. Um, right. And then she almost fights Mr. Trick, and right. she doesn't again. again. I would say again, yeah. <laughs> she yeah. almost fights him, and then she um, blazes Laconis to a fiery death. Um, so also just like that, it's, it's really interesting how many villains they're kind of able to fit into this episode on top of everything else that's already happening. <laughs> and the mayor and the mayor on top of all of those. Right. While uh, the mayor's plot going. Right. But also, well, I mean, you're right, but I don't think, I don't think it ever feels too crowded though. No. Well, but it, I, I feel like, yeah, exactly. I feel like, <laughs> I don't, I don't feel like the, the field is too crowded, but I feel like this, this is... It harkens back to something that I said earlier about how the whole thing with like Lurconis and these four measly babies that could have been stolen from anywhere, let's be honest. (laughs) I feel like all of that, it's a MacGuffin that was sort of just created in order to justify the, the rest of the plot. I feel like they came up with this idea, let's have everybody be kids again. Yeah. And then how do we how do we justify that how do we you know what do we come up with to make that work for that yeah (laughs) what's the plot for that but really it was all just sort of this you know this hocus pocus to give you a glimpse uh, your first real kind of glimpse at the mayor you know how how, like he opened he has that, that shady cabinet filled with arcane objects yeah and and 
it really it all of that just exists to to show you that the mayor is up to something shady he's he has, he's this kind of like funny friendly quirky offbeat dude who is also like very linked to the like the dark side and it's i i feel like all of that it's just it's like blah 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 and here is this dude who is going to come back later and be a massively evil presence in the show so i think all of that was just it was just sort of there to they could because they could have done it without without the mayor and without mr trick and still have the episode be as powerful it could have just been That's ethan true. rain yeah, yeah and like but, i it's it's weird like you said there's not a big fight with ethan but there really wouldn't be a big fight like it's weird they never use Ethan, like, I feel like Ethan could have been, if they had brought him back, like, a season six character, the way they used Willow and Amy with magic, and the way Giles came back, like, it feels like Ethan Rain could have done that with his magic, like, you know, been firing spells off at Buffy to fight her, but he never did. Right. No, and I, I guess I feel like the, it, it, there were a few things that there were like a few objectives that they were really trying to get at with yeah. this episode. And, and I, I do feel like it, it does feel a little, a little bit tacked on that you have these scenes with the mayor and Mr. Trick who didn't really need to be there. Yeah. And they kind of exist in order to further, you know, or, or to create kind of like a tent pole for, for this ongoing developing storyline about who Buffy's real enemies are this season. Yeah. Um, I do think, um, so, so I didn't talk about this, but I, so like, I think Giles is hot, especially watching it now, but like (laughs) band candy Giles, like I'm such a cliche because of course band candy Giles does it for me. I mean, right, Matthew? Yes, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Like, just like, oh, I used to go to Warp Tour all the time. So of course band candy Giles does it for Ian. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um so, so what we, do you think don would have been doing during this episode i actually thought about that a lot when i, I was just it. gonna i was just gonna ask that. <laughs> oh we're on the oh, same man. page <laughs> oh no don would have been watching free pay-per-view right like i, mean, I feel like don would have been having a ball <laughs> absolutely oh you know what it's so interesting th- saying that she would have been doing that because don probably is more of a carbon copy of uh her mother than buffy is yeah. Absolutely, mm-hmm. and and I feel like at, at the age that she would have been in this episode, she would have been pleased as punch to have her kind of like her mom suddenly be this fun teenager who doesn't want all this responsibility anyway. And Joyce would have just said, um, "I'm going out with Ripper, and so here I'm going to put pay per view on for you, <laughs> and you can eat all the junk food you want." Mommy's going out to get plowed on a police car. <laughs> here's a TV. Here's like a microwave pizza. Here's some pizza can bagels you, and some can paper. You a, can you make a t-shirt that just says mommy's going out to get plowed on a police car? <laughs> That's also part choice. of the Slayer Fest 98 line. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, like that's going to be my new pickup line. Like... <laughs> Uh-huh. I um I'm okay with that. Me, I think me going into Philly every weekend. <laughs> yeah, smart smart parenting choice. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think yeah. I think Dawn would have been like holed up in her room watching pay per view and like eating all the cupcakes and like potato chips. 
Yep. yep. Oh yeah, no. And Joyce would have been like, it's not. fine. Yeah. So I think it's time for us to grade this episode. Grade oh. this episode. Uh, that was my <laughs> that was my Buffy sound effect for being great this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Your own personal gur arg. <laughs> I okay. Uh, well, I'm I'm giving it an A, obviously, because I think it's uh, I think it works on so many levels. I think it's I think it's engaging, it's entertaining, it's funny, it's suspenseful, um, and it's really it's just a really well done one off really in the series it's like if you're gonna watch yeah. a monster of the week episode you you couldn't do a whole lot better than this one i have i have to say i do like episodes that i want to go back to that i can like put on as background if i'm writing or like editing photos this and gingerbread are the two that i often revisit in season three as like background episodes um yeah. and i think it's but i mean that in the best possible way because i'm gonna also give it an a i think it's a really great episode yeah, I'm also going to give it an A just because it it oh. deftly balances so many spinning plates on its many arms. Yeah. Yes. Oh, look. That made sense, all three right? of us all three of us agreed. That's like the second or third time that's ever happened on this podcast. Yay. Uh, it's cuz it's that good of an episode. Yeah. Okay, so thanks for listening. You can follow Slayerfest98 on Twitter at slayerfestx98. And you can follow me on Twitter at Ian X Carlos because I'm consistent with my brand, Matthew. <laughs> you can find me at Matthew Rodriguez. No X's, just Matthew Rodriguez. <laughs> One T and a G. And a Z. And a Z, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we could flip that next episode and you say mine and I say yours, Matthew. <laughs> I'm always here to be your support. And Caleb. Aww. Oh, and you can find me. Mine, of course, is going to be complicated. You can find me at Michaelib Rareg, um, and that is M I K A L E B, and then my convoluted um, uh, Gothic word puzzle of a last name <laughs> R R O E H R I G. Um, wow, that's a what? Okay, <laughs> exactly. Actually, 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 Ooh, actually, uh, yes. it is German. It means it means um, read like or pipe like. Oh, ooh, oh, okay. That is what my last name means. And you should check out Caleb's book, Last Scene Leaving. And when does your new one come out? Uh, okay, yes. Yeah, so my my forthcoming second novel, White Rabbit, comes out April twenty fourth, twenty eighteen. Okay, yeah. But you can pre order it now. Oh, good to know. Yeah, um, his book's really great. I recommend it. Um, thanks for listening, and we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.